Amen. Hey, good morning. I'm glad you're with us. Uh, if you have a Bible, find your way to Jonah chapter 2. We're going to be in chapter 2, chapter 3. Uh, we are in a series on the minor prophets, which this is a section of the Old Testament scriptures where these people were speaking to God's people. And really the goal with the minor prophets, or I don't know if it's the goal, but it, this is the reality of them, is like they're challenging. Like everything they say is like, oh, that was hard to hear. Like there's a lot of that. And Jonah is one of those things. And specifically what we see in Jonah, like we should see a little bit of ourselves in him or rather see a little bit of him in ourselves. Like he's challenging us in this book. And what he's specifically challenging us with is the person uh, who we least like, the person we struggle with the most, that person, is a person for whom God is eager to dispense mercy upon. Jonah didn't like that. Like, he, he ran from that. That was hard for him to accept. And I think we need to see ourselves in there. If we're going to embrace the gospel of God's grace, we have to embrace a gospel that is not just for us, but it is also for that person whom we like the least. My favorite definition of the gospel, and since we're talking about the gospel, I always love to throw it out there, um, I've shared this a few times, but here's the gospel. This is my favorite definition. One author writes, the gospel is the amazing news that God is good, that he loves you, that he will happily give up everything he has so he can have you. Jesus is proof of that. The gospel says that because of Jesus' work, God is not angry with you. He isn't even in a bad mood. He is eager to share his life with you and that he is actively restoring you and all of creation to what it was created to be. Isn't that a great definition? Like that's absolutely true of you. That is how God sees you. That's what the gospel means. But we cannot cling to that gospel of grace without realizing it also applies to that person or those people who we struggle with the most. That's what the gospel of grace does. And I, I don't know who that is for you. Who do you struggle with the most? Please don't shout out any names. Uh, I, yeah, like, seriously, no, no joke. Like, maybe there's someone in your life who has hurt you so deeply that you'll never recover this life from the pain that they've caused you. You know, maybe there's a, maybe it's a, it's a group of people or, or people who see the world a certain way and it, you are, they are the people who are wrecking it for the rest of us. And you just struggle with them. They're standing against, you know, human decency and everything of God. Who is it that you struggle with the most? What this book is going to make us do is force us to picture that person's face in our definition of the gospel, it's so uncomfortable. It's really hard. Um, I had an idea, and it's probably a bad idea. I want to apologize in advance for this idea because I hate it as much as you're going to hate it, but we're going to hate it together. I'm sorry uh, to do this. But uh, what I want to do is I'm going to read this definition of the gospel again. Uh, but I've taken out the word you every time that it appears. Because we read the gospel and we're like, oh my gosh, God loves me so much. And that's important. And I put in uh, a little smiley face because here's what I want you to do. In all of those places where it previously said you, I want you to picture the face of that person with whom you struggle the most. 
That's mean and hard, uh, but we'll get through it together. What we believe is not just about us. It is also about that person. The gospel is the amazing news that God is good, that he loves, picture their face, and that he will happily give up everything that he has so that he can have Jesus is the proof of that. The gospel says that because of Jesus' work, God is not angry with, picture their face. He isn't even in a bad mood. He is eager to share his life with. And he is actively restoring in all of creation to what it was created to be. I think if we really want to understand what's happening in the book of Jonah, like that feeling that we might have right now is just a small percentage of what Jonah felt. And we're like, why would Jonah run from God? That's why. Because God asked him to serve the people that he least liked on earth. That's why this book is so hard. That's why it's so important. Let me catch us up. Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. So the kingdom of Israel split into Judah and Israel. That's the northern kingdom. Um, And Jonah is up there in the north in Israel. And Israel's doing pretty well. And the reason they're doing pretty well is because their worst enemy, the Assyrians, are really struggling at this point in history. Hooray! Everyone in Israel is so happy about that. And then God shows up and he says, hey, Jonah, those Assyrians are the worst. And Jonah's like, I know, I hate those guys. And God's like, here's the thing. I need you to go to them and tell them that I want them to change. And Jonah's like, no, I'm not doing that. And he goes in the opposite direction. Long story short, he almost drowns. He gets swallowed by fish. That's where we're going to pick up in chapter 2, okay? Um, What happens next in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3 are going to be two examples of repentance and mercy. It's about the mercy of God, back-to-back examples here. And we should see ourselves a little bit in Jonah like the Israelites all would have. Uh, But if we do, we're going to see this is a stunning portrayal of God's mercy for us, but also God's mercy for those people for whom we think least deserve it. Okay, that's what these next two chapters are going to be a picture of. So let's start in Jonah chapter 2. The first is this picture of God's mercy for Jonah. Verse 1. This is a prayer. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. It's probably a great lesson in there about prayer. It doesn't really matter where you do it or how you do it. It just matters that you do it, right? So I'm going to read this prayer. It's like a psalm. You can think of it like a psalm. Like it, like a, These are lyrics to a song or a poem or something like that. It's a psalm about salvation. Here's what he writes. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, the roots uh, to the roots of the mountain I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. 
but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Sometimes God takes years to answer prayers. Sometimes it's right away. Uh, Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I love that sentence. Uh, So, observation here about repentance. This is Jonah's moment where he's like, okay, God, I relent. He's repenting. Okay, here's an observation about repentance. It doesn't take much, right? It doesn't take much. Jonah is like the least repentant person ever, right? He is like just barely repentant. He is drowning, remember, because he would rather die than serve these Ninevites, right? So he's like, I'd rather die. Just throw me in the ocean. I'm going to die. And then he says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. Now, that's very poetic, and it's like, oh, that's what a beautiful line that he's written. But in context, what he has said here is, God, I guess you're better than drowning, I guess, so help me out. Like, that's not exactly a compelling worship lyric, is it? You're better than drowning. That's true. Throughout the whole story, we see that. Jonah, like, bitterly concedes to God. There is not a moment in this book where you're like, oh, and then Jonah gets it. He doesn't get it. Like, the whole story, he doesn't get it. But his heart is never in it. Yet God pursues him, and God saves him, and God spares him. And why? Not because Jonah's repentance is so robust, but God saves him because of this line, salvation comes from the Lord. So here's the first thing that we have to understand, a lesson in God's mercy. It applies to us, but it also applies to the people that we don't like. Here's the lesson. Salvation is not about the worthiness of our faith. It's not. Salvation is not because our faith is so great. Salvation is about the mercy of our Savior. We talked about this uh, last spring. You remember we did the series where we talked about the thief on the cross next to Jesus who just like in the last breath kind of gets in under the wire uh, with forgiveness. Um, When it comes to faith and repentance, God will take anything. Like, that's what it seems to be true in the scriptures. Remember, we read this quote from the theologian Richard Newhouse. He said, Jesus is not fastidious about the quality of faith. He takes what he can get, so to speak, and he gives immeasurably more than he receives. He takes our faith more seriously than we do and makes more of it than we ever could. His response to our faith is greater than our faith. And we see that here, right? God's response to Jonah's meager, begrudging, embittered statement of faith is far greater than Jonah deserves because that is the nature of mercy. It is is God who saves us, not our robust faith. Now, I bring that up because I think think this is true. I mean, it may not be true in your experience, but I I think a lot of times in church, we kind of insinuate uh, the opposite. Like we kind of at times insinuate that it's really hard to be saved. So like you really got to have faith. You really got to 
be that sort of person who turns to God, who gets it right, like that's what it takes. I actually think in the Bible, there's a lot more examples of the opposite of that. Like Jonah, the Ninevites in just a second are going to be an example of that that would suggest the opposite. I think a, a mental exercise I always like to challenge people with is this. Uh, like, let's just ask this rhetorical question. Which is harder to get into, heaven or hell? Have you ever thought about that? Which is harder to get into? Now, ultimately, none of us know the answer to this question because there are aspects of salvation that God has kept as a mystery from us that we don't fully understand. And so anyone who tells you, oh, yeah, I have it all figured out, they're... That's not true. So there's a, a mysterious aspect to this. We can't ever ultimately answer this question, but what do you think? Is it harder to get into heaven or is it harder to get into hell? Now, caveat, we all deserve hell, right? Apart from the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, uh, the wages of our sin is hell. And I think because of that, most of us would assume hell must be really easy to get into. I mean, people are just dying to get into it. No? Okay. Sorry. I mean, if you can't use a hell joke in church, where can you use it? I apologize deeply for that. Um, I think most of us assume well, hell's the easiest place to get into ever. But that's because we don't think like our merciful God. What was Jonah's answer to that question? I actually think we see it in what he fears. Jonah seems to think forgiveness is the easy thing, right? Like Jonah just, he, he knows how merciful God is. Like his whole story is about, I just know you're going to let those people off the hook. It's just like you, God, to let them off the hook. I just, I, I know you're going to do it. And so we see in Jonah's heart what kind of the answer of the question is, as he fears the mercy of God that would apply to these people that he really doesn't like. Jonah would love it if God destroyed the Ninevites. Jonah is afraid that he's going to find an excuse to relent. Jonah didn't even know about Jesus. Like, we know about Jesus. We know about this idea of God entering in and pursuing us to the ends of the earth and this God who fights for us in Jesus Christ. Like, what, like we know that. And sometimes we doubt our salvation or whatever. What if we thought like Jonah? What if, uh, like Jonah, like we were so confident in the mercy of God that instead of doubting our own salvation, our fear is constantly that God's going to let in people that we hate. Because that's what we see in Jonah. Here's something, and it speaks to all of the minor prophets, so we're going to have to try to remember this as we go through these this year. This is very important. The prophets call people to repent a lot, right? That's a big message of the prophets is it's time to repent. That is not because they think God's mercy is hard to get, but it's actually the prophetic call to repentance is because the prophets knew how accessible God's mercy was. And we have to keep that in mind. Like every minor prophet we read, because there's going to be a lot of messages like repent or be destroyed. Um, Jonah's about to deliver a message like that. But in Jonah, we see the perspective of the prophets, which like God's mercy is it's just there for the taking. So repent. It's easy. It's accessible. We see this again and again in the Bible. God responds to small turns towards him with abundant mercy. 
That's what Jonah experiences. He just barely turns to God, and God's like, I'll take that. Jonah says, I guess I'd rather have you than drown to death, and God's like, that'll do, and he saves him. Now, we're going to see something similar with the Ninevites, although the irony of this book is here's this horrible group of people, uh, and they're going to actually have a better moment of repentance than Jonah. Look at this, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1, actually. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I want you to notice that message. Like, this is the worst gospel presentation ever, right? Like, there's no hope in it. There's no, but God, great mercy. Like, it's just... It's over for you guys. It's a message of destruction. And I think we could all suppose, based on what we know from Jonah so far, it probably was not delivered with the most kindness. <laughs> I mean, he hates these people, right? He is on team destruction. Like, he has a t-shirt, destruction, yay. You know, that's, that's what he's rooting for, is that God would destroy them. Um, but again, just like on the ship, the irony is, here is this prophet of God who gets it wrong. And here are these, uh, this pluralistic, wicked nation of Assyria who relates to God as if he is, in fact, merciful. Look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let, the, let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up all their evil ways and their violence. Now, I would say, in terms of repentance, this is just my opinion, I, I think that's far better repentance than Jonah's little song in the fish, honestly. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. Jesus, he gives them a shout out in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11. He says, the Ninevites repented and all they had was Jonah, which tells you something about Jonah. Um, Jesus is saying that to point out, you guys have me and you're still not repenting. You got it way better than the Ninevites, but they believed God. Jonah is like the worst evangelist ever. He didn't even like these people, but I want you to notice how it's written. The king of Nineveh didn't put his hope in Jonah. He put his hope in the message, uh, or, or the, the one who the message originated with. Look at who he puts his hope in. Verse 9, this is still him talking. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn his uh, uh, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And everyone was happy except Jonah. The Ninevites didn't hope in Jonah. They hoped in this com the, the compassion of a foreign God that they hardly knew about. He said, maybe he'll be merciful to us, which is amazing. And it also is a stunning indictment on the people of God. 
It's a stunning indictment on Israel. Like Israel actually experienced the compassion and the mercy of God. For generations they experienced the compassion and mercy of God. And yet when God's like, hey guys, I want you to do something. Embrace my uh, you know, mission on earth to the nations around you. They're like, I don't know, we're pretty comfortable. Change is hard. You know, like that was how they responded to this merciful and compassionate God. And at this point in history, you see the nation of Israel, the people of God, God's chosen people, they are entitled. They are more worried about their rights than they are about God's mission. They're constantly asking, well, what's in it for me if I obey? They're uh, more concerned about their religious services than they are about God's mission on earth, what he's called them to. They're consistently taking the the path of least resistance. That's just their thing. They had this uh, zero gratitude towards God for what he'd done because all they could look at is what they didn't have. Well, we're not as powerful as the Assyrians. When I describe it that way, does it remind you of anyone? Maybe the largest and fastest growing religious group in our nation. I think the point of the prophets for us, is we have to be willing and have the humility to see ourselves in the people of God. They're struggling. We need to find ourselves in those stories so that we don't struggle. And I'm sad to say, I think I see a lot more of us in Jonah and in that attitude than maybe I do in the Ninevites. That may be why God is kind of shaking the American church right now. He wants us to wake up and take seriously his mission on earth, his mission of mercy. I'll be honest, when I started prepping for Jonah, I was like, oh, yeah, Jonah, it's the fish story. Um, I didn't expect it. Like, it, like it's shaking. Like, it shakes me a little bit, some of what you read here. Like, because you see yourself in it, and you're like, oh, my gosh, that is really, really ugly. And I think that is the idea of this book, is it's meant to shake the people of God. I'm curious about this. How is it shaking you? I'd love, I wish we had time to talk about that, but since I have the microphone, let me just tell you how it's shaking me. Uh, here are three ways that it's shaking me. Um, I really would love to hear your, uh, the way it's shaking you, but this is what I'm pulling out of this story. When you look at these two stories of repentance, one of Jonah, one of Nineveh, I'm shaken in a, in a few ways. One is this. We are not the people of God because we are special. I don't mean that as an insult to you. You are special. Uh, But that's not why God chose you, right? We are the people of God because he is merciful, not because we are special. And it's easy to forget that. It's easy to flip that and think he chose us just because we kind of get it. You know, we get it and others don't. And that's why he chose us. And if we accidentally start thinking that way, like we become this ugly version of spirituality, and we see that in Jonah. What Jonah is seeing is he is seeing himself and those Ninevites as fundamentally different. I'm not like them, right? And in that is kind of this attitude that somehow I, like somehow I was chosen for a reason by God. I'm like the prophet of God for a reason, um, but I think God saw them clearly as both the same, the Ninevites and Jonah. They both needed to repent. They both were in need of God's mercy. 
And that is the healthy way to see it. God did not claim us as his people because we were so great or because we get it. He claimed us as his people because he is so merciful. And if we really get that, like if we really let that just sit in our hearts a little bit, then what will start to happen is we will look across the table at those people that we hate, that we can't stand, that we think don't get it, that we just can't struggle with. And we'll start to see a reflection of ourselves in them. We'll start to see ourselves as somehow the same. Somehow both desperately in need of God's mercy. And that is a healthy version of spirituality, not the ugly type that we see in Jonah. That shakes me, though. Here's the second thing that shakes me. And I want to say, uh, like, so we're going to do three sermons out of Jonah. I am going to say nothing nice about Jonah except for right now. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, that, like, just write it down. This is the one nice thing I will say about Jonah. He was horrible. His attitude was horrible. His attempts to run away were horrible. But... Jonah showed actual compassion on the Ninevites. Let me give you a quote that will help frame what I mean. Uh, this summer I was uh, able to be involved in Brian and Lisa Playstead's racial reconciliation group, uh, which was an extraordinary experience. As you know, the conversation about race in our country is so deeply broken. Brian and Lisa, some of their friends, have stepped into that brokenness to say, hey, could we have a better conversation on this subject? Uh, it was extraordinary. I highly recommend it. If you're the sort of person who longs for healthy conversations on important issues where there is listening and mutual respect, this is a group for you. We're going to start one up here in a few weeks. Um, but it, consider it. But in the course of that group, I read this quote that just blew my mind. There was a great pastor, Eugene Peterson, who has uh, died, went to be with the Lord a few years ago. Uh, he wrote this, though. Feeling sorry for the victims of injustice is not a prophetic act. We live in a culture that has replaced compassion with sentiment. Sentiment is mere feeling, disconnected from relationship. Sentiment is spilled compassion. It looks like concern. It could develop into compassion, but it seldom does. Man, isn't that, isn't that kind of true about our culture, right? Like we're the culture where like people will constantly like and share feelings of, about injustice. And yet I, I would suspect that a lot of those people who have liked and shared a lot of stuff have not given one dime to the cause to right the injustices or participate in one tangible action to fix the injustices. That is not compassionate. That's sentimentality. And sentimentality has helped a, a grand total, I did the math earlier, of zero people. We don't have a sentimental God. Thank God we don't have a sentimental God. We have a compassionate God who stepped in with action, who stepped in and got skin in the game, literally, to do something about the distance between us. What's fascinating to me about Jonah is here's a guy who has, like, honestly, zero sentiment. Like, he doesn't even have, like, 1% sentiment. He's got no sentiment. He didn't like these people. Uh, honestly, he should have had a little bit of sentiment, right? But he did have compassion in that he showed up eventually and he took an action. He showed up and he did what God asked. And yes, it was begrudging and he was embittered and he shouldn't have had all those feelings. But he did actually show up. And, uh, you know, I think in an ideal world, we're going to blend compassion and sentiment. Those should go together. We show up with action because we do care. We, do, we are genuinely moved. But if you have to pick one, do what Jonah did and pick compassion. Like if you have to pick one, you can be merciful 
without feeling like it, right? And that shakes me a little bit. This example, Jonah did that. As the people of God, it is better to be compassionate without feeling like it than it is to feel sentiment about an issue without ever acting, right? And that shakes me because a lot of times I am waiting to feel like it. Uh, Jonah never did. He stepped in with tangible action after a little while. Last thing that shakes me about this. Um, Let me describe it with a metaphor. When it comes to the mercy of God, God's people are called to be a river, not a swamp. You know what I mean? Comparing those two bodies of water. Uh, So a swamp, it collects water. That's what it does. It's like the end of the journey of water. It's stinky. There's a lot of bugs, a lot of decaying stuff. A river, on the other hand, it delivers water. Like water passes through it on its way to someplace else. Have you ever uh, like sat by a river for an hour or so? This is my wife's favorite thing is just to sit by a river. And like it is glorious, right? Like the sound of it is just like it does something to your soul. There's always a cool breeze by a river. Like it, it is just, it is an amazing, like all senses engaged experience to sit by a river. Have you ever sat in a swamp? We don't have a lot of swamps in Colorado, but have you ever sat in a swamp or visited a swamp? It is less amazing than a river. You see what I'm getting at? When we hold on to the mercy of God as if it is ours, there is a poverty of soul in that that is disgusting. But when we allow God's mercy like to flow through us to other people, it is amazing. And so I I think one of the things we have to realize here is that the answer to swampy Christianity is each of us have to find people in our lives to deliver God's mercy to. That's one of the ways that we become healthy spiritually is we find people to deliver God's mercy to. But by definition, what that means is we have to find someone who doesn't deserve it, right? We understand that about mercy. Like mercy means you don't deserve it. You cannot have mercy on someone who deserves it. Those are wages. That's just giving someone what they deserve, right? Mercy is only something that you can have for someone who doesn't deserve it. It's giving people what they don't deserve in the way that God gave us what we don't deserve, in the way that God gave Jonah what he didn't deserve or gave Nineveh what they didn't deserve. And it's allowing that mercy to flow through us to some other undeserving soul. That God is trying to shake us in this regard so that we become a river of mercy instead of a swamp of entitled spirituality. And I think that maybe brings us back to where we started today. Who is that person that you struggle with the most? Like, who's that person that if you saw them in Target, like you'd quick duck down the other aisle before they saw you just so you wouldn't have to talk to them or interact? Who's that group of people that you are, like, you're just sure they are the problem with this world? They're They're the problem. Who are your Ninevites? What we have to consider from this is that perhaps God has given us some Ninevites as a gift. 
in the same way that he gave the actual Ninevites to Israel as a gift. Now, I, I want to clarify one thing. I am not minimizing anything that someone has done to you. So abuse, neglect, manipulation, those things are not a gift to you, right? Those things are, are wrong. Just like the rampant immorality and murder of Nineveh, that wasn't a gift to Israel, right? People are responsible to God for what they do, and if someone has mistreated you, they are responsible to God for that, just like Nineveh was responsible to God for their sin. But what I want us to consider about those people that we don't like is that they teach us something about this God who is eager to have mercy on everyone. They force us to consider the fact that we are not belong, we don't belong to God because we're so special, but we belong to God because God is so special. They teach us to come face to face with the fact that he is rich in compassion for us, but not only for us. And we have to carry the fact that Jesus is our personal Savior, but he's not just our personal Savior. He's the God of mercy and compassion, even for those we don't like. And I think that's how this story is meant to shake us, to stretch us, maybe to get us to stop worshiping ourselves because we get it spiritually, and to start worshiping this God who is looking for just the slightest turn towards him so that he can dump out mercy on us. Perhaps that's why he's allowed some Ninevites in our life, so we could see him, see him as he is. So God, we come to you today trying to see you, trying to see you as you are, not as we wish you were. Trying to see ourselves as we are, not as we wish we were. We're thankful for your compassion and mercy, God. May we never let it stop with us. May we become a river of mercy to those people who definitely don't deserve it in our life. May we receive your mercy and give it away freely. And in doing that, God, may we come to love you even more for your rich compassion. Amen.